I'm Jacob Kinberg, and you're listening to Salty Cinema. Joining me today is Gary DeMar. Gary, how you doing? Doing well. So, Gary, why don't we start with you telling everyone about your background and just a little bit about what you do. Would, would you call yourself a theologian? Uh, uh, I, I grew up in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania, and most of my uh, interest at that particular period of time was in, in athletics. I went to Western Michigan University, uh, graduated in 1973, and uh, became a Christian my senior year in college, and then eventually went to Reform Theological Seminary. And I, I, I put myself more in the uh, popularizer of Christian worldview issues. Uh, I, I'm, I don't consider myself so much a, uh, an original thinker. I, I kind of pull together maybe some complicated material from people that's very good and try to make it accessible to people. Um, I, I deal with topics at a more uh, a popular level. And my interests are broad and and varied. So, um, so it, but at the bottom, of course, I'm making these assessments in terms of a you know a, a, a theological basis. Okay, great. So, uh, when it comes to thinking about film and television uh, from a theological basis, I think good place to start, or the first question that I have for you. Uh, what do you think Jesus would watch? Would he watch anything? If, if he were around now, um, would he spend any of his time watching movies or TV? I, I, don't, I don't think that's a legitimate question. There's probably lots of things he, he, you know, he, he wouldn't do. Uh, but keep in mind that Jesus was a storyteller. And, and that's really what you know, filmmaking is and writing books is. It's, it's, it's telling stories. Uh, and the and and the the Bible is written in in story form. It lays out a history. Uh, uh, it's you know deals with tragedy. It deals with the human condition. I mean, all the things that are really in films. And it, it, even if those films aren't uh, you know, so-called Christian, they all they all deal with biblical uh, paradigms. They they can't escape them. They they every movie that's ever come out deals you can always trace back to some concept of what you find in the Bible. Uh, so it's to me it's simply an extension of what the Bible is. The Bible is a book of storytelling, uh, and it's you know we we call it the Word and and uh, you know there, there were paintings paintings after that you know that depict biblical scenes and so forth and then finally. Uh, you know, Edison comes along with his kinetoscope and is able to put put these things on on, on film. Before that, of course, you had still photography, uh, and so this this medium you know grew and grew. And the church did not like the entertainment business. And one of the ironic things about all this is is that the ones who actually got involved in filmmaking were Jews, and the reason that the Jews got involved in it because no one else would touch it. They didn't. They, they thought it was a dirty business. No one wanted their children involved in, you know, to be actresses. Uh, you just go down the line. I was, in fact, I was reading something the other, well, just today actually, about Grace Kelly, and Grace Kelly was famous, uh, a beautiful, you know, starlet, uh, uh, rear window uh, to take a thief, uh, to catch a thief. She did. She she didn't do do a lot of films, and then she marries the Prince of Monaco, and she goes out of filmmaking. Uh, but she came from a, a very talented and uh, uh, ag aggressive in terms of gifts family. And she was considered the black sheep of the family because she went into the entertainment business. So this it wasn't something that Christians got involved in. And if you go back and look through history, you'll see a, con a consistent uh, uh, attack on Hollywood. I, I think most of the attack came on Hollywood because of the content not so much the medium it, it, itself. And as a result, you know, Jews who were, you know, if, if, if you know anything about the history of Jews, getting into certain professions they just could not get into. So they went into professions that no one else wanted to get, get into. And early on, uh, Jews dominated Hollywood. And it's what's interesting about that, that some of the best movies 
that have Christian themes attached to them were produced by uh, Jews in Hollywood. Uh, it's, a, it's, it's an amazing phenomenon. You can read, I think it's Michael Medved. It may, may not be Medved. Uh, I forget the other fellow who, who, who wrote a book about the Jews in Hollywood. It's a fascinating story. So Christians are, in fact, late to the game. If, um, if it wasn't about content, why do you think that was the reaction of Christians off the bat to the film industry before bad content was even part of the conversation? Well, bad bad content was part of the conversation back then. I mean, this is why. But uh, I mean, you had you had the Hayes Code. You had these rules that people right. Had. Yeah, you know, por- you know, think about it. Pornography has been around for a very long time, uh, and so you and you see today on online, you know, porn- pornography is a huge, huge business, and so th- this isn't anything anything new. And, and look, all you have to do is read the Bible. The number of stories. Of you know you know sexual promiscuity, adultery, rape. I mean, it's it's all in there. Uh, but you know, should should and, the, and Christians need to deal with those types of things, but with a biblical answer to it. And what was happening, I think, in Hollywood at that at that time, well, of course, wasn't called Hollywood at that time, but in the film industry, they were just they were making these types of things simply just to make money, and they weren't really out to make any you know statement with. Uh, with their with their views, uh, but you know Christians. I, I've got a number of books in my library where you know Christians were blasting Hollywood. Uh, Brian Godawa, you know, has has done a, a lot of work in this particular area uh, and sh- dealing with how Christians can get involved in the film industry and make an impact. So in Jesus' time, though, what what were the entertainment options for him? What would he have gone like? They had plays, right? Yeah, uh, I don't. I guess if you really go back and you look at uh, you know, the biblical text, I mean, you got you got lots of poetry, you have song, uh, the visual arts. Uh, you know, I'm I'm not sure exactly if you know, if the Hebrews were involved in uh, uh, the visual arts at, at, at all. But let's keep in mind that Jesus, again, as a storyteller, you know, is, you know, character development, you know, and, and you know, the, the opening of it, opening of the of the scenes, telling the story, the conclusion, all the elements are there. The technology, of course, you know, wasn't there for anyone. Of course, the, the Greeks put on on plays. But look, if you read the Psalms, the Song of Solomon uh, and uh, you, you, you get some idea of how literary that, you know, the Jews were, and that the Bible is full of literature. In fact, that's what the word literal means. It means according to the literature. Do you think there's something different about visualizing stories or visualizing the word that is different, and there's there's something there that uh, we have an issue with or feel there's something wrong with putting visuals to these stories that Jesus might have told or heard or things that we read, but that's one thing, but when you visualize it, that's something else. Uh, yeah, a lot of it has, you know, some of it has to do with the second commandment. It's, it's interesting that the second commandment, uh, you can't make a picture of anything, an image of anything uh, on heaven above or on earth beneath. Uh, but, the, but the caveat of that is to, to bow down and worship it. And there are a lot of Christians out there who take the second commandment. You can't have images of, of Jesus and so forth. I, I don't think the second commandment touches on that. The whole, the whole thing about the second commandment was the issue of worship. Um, and I, 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 I think it's very difficult and probably impossible to turn the Bible into a, uh, a, a film. The, the Bible does not lend itself to, to uh, that kind of thing, because uh, you have to add so much to the text in order to tell the story. I mean, you could tell individual stories. I mean, the story of Samson and Delilah, of course, was you know has been done. Uh, movies about David, uh, but you have to be careful because the the Bible being a written you know the written word, the context and all of the all of the elements necessary to interpret the Bible have to be included in order to make sense of things. Uh, so you have to be. I think you have to be careful about how you go about making a film. You know about the Bible. I think the 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 film Ben Hur does 
does more justice to the biblical story because there is a story surrounded, a very uh, you know, fundamental biblical story about the Christ. Now, this is uh, so you, you get you get the picture of the crucifixion and so forth with hardly any words. It's interesting. There's no there's when you when it comes to Jesus, Jesus, Jesus doesn't say anything. It's all about the actions of things of, that, that took place. And I, I think another side of this is, is that Christians think that they, they have to make a Christian movie that has to be a Christian movie, that it has to be something about Jesus and the Bible, about Martin Luther or John Calvin. But remember, this is God's world. Any movie we make is, in essence, a biblical movie. Uh, and, and this is why unbelievers, atheists, can turn out great movies because they borrow so much capital from the Christian worldview in order to make their movies work. Uh, one of the things I've been thinking about lately in, in reading about the idea of the, the myth of neutrality, how um, in everything, in politics, no one, no one is neutral. There's an underlying worldview behind every system, everything that, uh, any position that someone is taking. And as it relates to film, um, there's really, you know, we have this idea of a faith-based movie, but really every movie is a faith-based movie because every movie has a worldview behind it that is being expressed. So er everyone's making faith-based movies. They're all faith-based movies. It's just what is yeah. what is the faith? Right, they are. Uh, and, and, you know, these filmmakers, many of them, you know, coming from a very secular, non-Christian, even anti-Christian background, don't realize the very fact that you have two people on the screen talking to one another immediately demolishes their worldview. And if there is something in the film that people make a, a moral assessment of, that too is, is you can't account for given atheistic presuppositions. Um, when science is, is mentioned in a film and science is being done in the film, all science can do is count. It can tell you uh, this person is dead, uh, and, and, they can, and they can tell you that uh, we know how this person died, and we know who killed this person, but the scientists who, who do an autopsy and the medical examiner can't come back and say, this person died, and it was morally wrong to kill that person. And if, if there's any scene in the in, in, in a film that deals with the the, the moral dilemma of, of death and murder and so forth, that comes from a that comes from a biblical worldview. It does not come from an evolutionary worldview because evolutionists can't account for morality. They live in the context of God's world, and they use the the breath that God has given them uh, for them to you know curse and deny Him. Uh, so. This is why Christians, when they when they watch films, and sometimes it's a little irritating when I watch films with people because I'm pointing these things out. I have to kind of keep my mouth shut sometimes. But over over time, you you get practiced in looking at films and evaluating them from a from a, a biblical perspective. What work has been done in this area by Reconstructionists? Was there any any Reconstructionists that kind of took on? entertainment or film in a significant way to to focus on that area of life? Um, the only actor I know who did was John Quaid. I don't know if you know who John Quaid is or was. Uh, and the, the reason he got jobs in Hollywood, he was so ugly. I mean, this is that's it's really a, it's a reality. His, his real name was John Saunders, but uh, he someone that had already gone by that name and he changed his name to to uh, John Quaid. Uh, but he was in Every Which Way But Loose with Clint Eastwood. Uh, he was in Papillon. Uh, he was uh, in The Sting. He was in quite a few films. and He was a Christian Reconstructionist, uh, but he was in it as, a, as an, an actor. I don't know if he did any producing or you know, directing uh, but it's this is this whole area is very new to people, to, new to Christians. Filmmaking is is a is a very new enterprise for for Christians. A lot of what's coming out from Christians is is not very good. But we're in the practice stage. I mean, the whole you know, if you think about the kinetoscope, 
you know, you're capturing somebody, you know, sneezing or dancing or uh, determining whether, you know, when a horse runs, all four hoofs are off the ground at the same time. Uh, they practice. They've been in. They've been doing this for decades, and unfortunately, Christians have not. And so, a lot of the stuff that's coming out of Hollywood today isn't very good. That uh, doesn't mean we should stop. It just means we should get better at it. And just the other day, I, I was watching um, How Green Was My Valley, which is an excellent, excellent film. If you if if you haven't seen it, and I made made the point that if you want to do good produce good films, study good films. Uh, if you want to be a you know, great athlete, you know, study, study the movements and the routines uh, that make somebody a great athlete. We do this in every area of life. You just can't go in and make films and think, oh, I'm going to do really well at this without having to study, study this. A lot of these guys went to film school at a very early age. Uh, but it, this is all beginning to change. There are a number of, lots of, lots of young reconstructionists out there who are in the film film area, um, the, the, the issue is going to be how well are they going to do in the production side of things. Right. Um, so for you personally, how do you decide what you will and will not watch? What Do you have a, a framework for that? Oh, boy. <laughs> Most... I have a I have an extensive movie list that I've I've put together. Most of the movies I like are pretty old, late 30s, 40s, 50s, maybe a couple in the 60s. Uh, uh, the unfortunately, a lot of the movies that are coming out today are unwatchable because of the kind of the sexual content in them. Uh, and it, it and it's not that in a lot of these older films there wasn't the idea that there was a sexual backdrop going on you knew this just like in the bible you 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 you, you it's, it's very very explicit in the bible actually um it's 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 hard for me to tell just exactly what is you know for me what i'll watch because oftentimes i don't i don't know it until i start watching it i might get into it for five minutes and then turning it off my wife we 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 do that repeatedly and we like all different types of, of films. I like, in many cases, different films from what my wife likes. She likes all the, a lot of these period pieces. And I watch a lot of them, too. I mean, uh, what was the uh, some of the Jane Austen stuff? I actually sat down with my, my wife and, and, and watched those. I like a lot of the period pieces, too. A lot of the British, uh, British uh, uh, kind of detective police dramas I, I like. Uh, but you know, some things today are just unwatchable because of the the, the sexual content and and, exp and really the language. And, and you think about it, you go back and watch those older films, and it was uh, it was shocking. It was shocking at the end of uh, Gone with the Wind because you know uh, Rhett Butler uses the word uh, "damn" uh, in it, and there's some dispute as to what that word damn means. Rush Dooney said it was a type of Indian coin, like a penny. So when he said, I don't give a damn, he says, I don't, I don't give, I don't give you a, I won't give you a penny for this, but that's how, that's how things were back, you know, in movies, it was the storytelling and the character development and the pacing that made the difference that drew you into the film today. It's, uh, character development really isn't important. A lot of it's, you know, background, uh, you know, CGI stuff, violence, the sex, the language. I mean, you, you, you watch some of these shows and these, you know, these these guys can't talk uh, two minutes without using the F word 20 times. Um, it's it, to me, it's 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 cheap there. It's cheap filmmaking. If that's if that's how you're telling the story, if the story itself can't move the film or move an episode on television, then you're in the wrong business. Uh, that's not good, you know, good uh, filmmaking. I remember the uh, Samuel L. Jackson did Snakes on a Plane and people were upset because there weren't enough expletives from Samuel L. Jackson to move the story along. Uh, and if you, have to, if you have to do that, in order to get people to you know to watch your films, it's it's to me it's just poor filmmaking, it's, it's poor stories, and it's kind of like junk food. You know, you get raised on junk food, you crave junk food, and and I think today in order to entertain people, you've got to add all this other junk 
and story, you know, storytelling is, 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 is put aside. Yeah. So content aside, in terms of the amount of time spent consuming entertainment, um, do you have, uh, thoughts on how we as Christians should come to that question? How much time we spend watching movies or television? Well, I tell you, my wife and I, every night we come downstairs and usually watch one thing. Uh, if it's a, if it's a, a series, we'll usually watch one, uh, one episode. Uh, if it's a 30 minute episode, we might watch two. And that's about all we do. I mean, we, uh, we work during the day. My wife reads a lot. Uh, she does a lot of other type, a lot of ministry uh, material. Of course, I have, a, I have a job in what I'm doing. So again, we do something late, you know, in the evening. Uh, we're, you know, empty nesters, so we don't have any, you know, children to deal with. And I think, you, I think with children, you really, really need to guard their their, their time because, uh, and when we have some of the grandchildren over here, um, I, I I try to expose them to films that they ordinarily wouldn't watch. And one of the first questions they ask me is, is this in color? And uh, and I said, look. It's the story that counts. It's the story that counts. And it's amazing. Uh, I, I was watching, we, I had a movie on, uh, it's called The Big Clock. Uh, Charles Lawton um, and uh, a number of other you know, fine actors of, of the day. Uh, let's see, Ray Milland was in it as well. And it was black and white. And it was interesting when they came and they were watching me rewatch it. Probably I've watched it probably three or four times. They were really engrossed in it because of the character development and the story and the pacing. Uh, and if you introduce children to good films uh, at an early age, they will, I think they will respond and make and be, be able to make a better evaluation of, of, of later films. And then sit down and discuss the elements in those, those films with them. Uh, help, help them catch the biblical aspects of it. Again, this doesn't have to be a Christian film at all. Uh, you can ask your children all kinds of questions and, and starting and start to get them to think presuppositionally about things and pay attention to details in films. Uh, but take them back to some of these these older films. I have a, a, a list of them. There are lots of uh, inventors and biographies, uh, you know, sport, you know, sports films, adventure films, war films. I mean, a film like Sergeant York, which is based on the, the true life uh, of, of of Sergeant York, who was a became a was a hellraiser, became a became a Christian, is drafted in World War One. He says he, he can't go because he, the the Sixth Commandment forbids him from killing, from murdering, and uh, he's you know he's in there and he makes up his own mind that no de defending defending yourself against a sworn enemy is an exception to what the commandment is all about. And Gary Cooper, you know, won an Academy Award for that. Walter Brennan is in it. It's a great, great film. So in, you introduce your children to those types of films and get them used to viewing, uh, you know, films with character development and and, and story, and uh, no special effects. Um, you know, it's, it's it's amazing. I think they 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 do in fact respond to that sort of thing. Uh, obviously, I, I love movies. I watch everything. I I just it's it's what I enjoy doing the most. And so I, I guess I just I struggle with knowing practically in thinking through the amount of time I spend doing it. How beneficial is it? I guess going back to Jesus and the disciples, I know it's a hard question to answer, but I, I want to know if there is a biblical uh, framework or based. Uh, theology of entertainment that we can pull out of scripture to say, this is, this is how we should engage uh, with this. This is the amount of time we should spend on this. Like, do you have any, any insights, um, just practical advice about what we can get from scripture in terms of these kinds of questions? I, again, I think this is a balance. I mean, it, you know, you think about, uh, you know, when my grandparents and parents were, were growing up, uh, I mean, they they worked from uh, you know dawn to dusk every day just to just to a, accomplish things. I mean, just I remember going down to my grandparents' 
a basement, one of the head, she, they had one of these ringer uh, washers. You, know, you had this tub and you had this board that had ripples in it. And you, you know, instead of going out and pounding a rock somewhere, this was this was something that was advanced technology where you scrubbed on this board and you took it through a ringer and you put it in there and you turned the crank on it and so forth. So today we we do have more time. Uh, does it have to be, you know, packed full of 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 labor. I, I, I don't think so. Um, and, you know, Jesus and the disciples, they, again, I, I, I think we, we get to the Bible, we got to be very clear that it's, it's message. Uh, you know, we, we, we get Jesus when he was born, we get him when he was eight days old, we get him when he was 12 years old, uh, we hear about him when he was about 30 years old, and then he's, he's crucified, you know, uh, you know, three years later. We, we don't, we don't know what took place uh, in the interim? You know, did they kick a ball around? Uh, you know, did they, uh, you know, did they uh, do little plays? Did they, you know, did they? Enter I'm, I'm sure kids entertained their parents with dancing. I mean, David danced before the ark, so that was certainly something that was going on. I mean, you have in the in the Psalms musical instruments. What do you use them for? Just for worship? I don't think so. I think so, if you pull all this together, and everything comes down, I think, to balance. I mean. Your, your circles, a circle of responsibility, circles of responsibility, you know, self-government under God, you know, your, fam your family, your work, worship, uh, all the things that are, are uh, you know, enveloped around those things, that we, we have more leisure time today. Uh, and I don't think it's wrong to sit back and actually, uh, you, know, you know, spend time you know, being entertained by others. Now, if you're consumed by, if you're spending like five, four or five hours a day watching movies, or if you're, if you're, you know, sitting playing video games for three hours a day, I think that is indeed a waste of time. But I don't think you should feel guilty, you know, sitting down and and you know, watching something that's you know worthwhile and, and edifying, and even some things that are critical that you watch something in order to you know to make a critical assessment of things. It's just a matter of perspective. And, uh, you know, to you know, when, when you're, you know, your responsibilities, when the day is done, you can do these sorts of things. I think with your children, though, you need to be very careful how much uh, uh, entertainment time they have. You know, get, you know, get them outside. You know, they, we I hear these comedians talk about, uh, uh, you know, hey, when we, you know, we were growing up, we, we couldn't come back until five, five o'clock till it was dinner time. Parents never saw us until five or six o'clock. We entertained ourselves. And then when we came back and we, you know, uh, uh, dinner was over and all that, we could play under the under the street lights. And uh, and when, when the porch light blinked or so forth, you know, you had to go in. What did we do with that extra time? Well, we entertained one another. We probably told stories and uh, who knows what else, probably a lot of not so, so, so great moral things but at the same time I don't think I don't think it's changed very much I just think that the medium of entertainment has in fact changed and access to so much of it has changed I mean growing up there were three television channels ABC CBS and NBC that was it and it was over over the air entertainment you had to have rabbit ears and the entertainment wasn't that great in fact when I, I remember coming home from school I don't know if it was the second grade there was still a test pattern on the TV that really Television didn't begin until three or four o'clock in the afternoon. But the what's available to us today is is, is enormous. Uh, and so I think, think you have to be selective and I think you have to be judicial in the way that you use your time. In terms of being discerning about what we watch and uh, and in just critiquing what we think is worth being watched and what what is good, um, do you think we can we can judge art objectively, or is it all just subjective? Oh no, I think you can. And, and Francis Schaeffer, of course, dealt with uh, with art and film. Uh, John Whitehead did you know did the same. Rush Dooney wrote a book called The Politics of Pornography. Um, 
And he talked about escapism and a lot of entertainment. I mean, there, you just have to pull all this stuff together. You know, why are you watching a film? Um, like pornography, for example, it, it, it creates an unreal world. It creates a, an unreal uh, conception of what a man or a woman is like. It fractures, it fractures the, the image of God by, by creating something that is unreal. And as a result of that, the reality is obscured. And so you have again, uh, and, and this can happen with 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 anything. You can you you pick it. You can pick politics. The same thing happens there in a different way. Sports, uh, and of course in, in, in entertainment. I mean, there are young people today and that idolize uh, entertainment figures and, and sports figures. Um, and uh, but you know, the, a lot of people when they engaged in sports, they weren't in into it for the for the idolatry aspect of it. They were using it as an expression of who they were as persons. You go back and watch uh, the film Jim Thorpe, uh, All-American, uh, which is a fascinating film. I'm surprised someone hasn't redone it. Uh, Burt Lancaster played Jim Thorpe. Uh, you know, today a Native American would, would, would of course, take that role. Um, and it, it was, it was uh, very, very new. But today, sports figures uh, make you know, literally millions and millions of dollars and are idolized and, and sell merchandise and so forth. It's, it, it's, it's gotten out of hand from, from, from what I think the film industry initially was all about. But that happens with everything. It's not just, it's not just entertainment. You think of anything that's out there, it's always overexpressed in some way or another in order to bring in more people in order to watch or to buy whatever they're, they're putting on and selling. Specifically, when it comes to the idea of beauty, do you think that's a, something that we can judge objectively? Is there a, a biblical standard of, of beauty that we can apply? Uh, I mean, you definitely have times in the Bible where people are described as beautiful. Yeah. I, you know, I don't know. I mean, you have the Song of Solomon, which obviously takes the, the human form as something you know beautiful and to be appreciated, uh, and uh, I, I don't know how much emphasis you know should be put on uh, you know the looks of a person, but obviously people look different, and some people are more attractive than others. There was a book that was written a number of years ago, ago called Facial Justice, where it says you know we, we there are A faces and B faces, and what we have to do is make the A faces look like B faces. But let's look. Some people are more attractive than others. Some people speak better than others. Some people are taller than others. Uh, some people are more intelligent than others. Um, and I, whether or not beauty is in the eye of the beholder, but you know, it, it you know, I like some some kinds of art. I don't like other kinds of art. Uh, I think that is that's probably a good thing. Um, I think the diversity of 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 gifts and talents and the in the uh, you know diversity. A perspective is is good for maybe to, for people to try something new. Hey, have you ever considered this type of art? Uh, and you know, uh, like you know, you you take somebody by like Van Gogh. I mean, was uh, I mean, he was a failure in, in in his life, and the art somewhat seems somewhat amateurish. But yet, when you sit down and look at all that he has done, the appreciation of what Van Gogh you know, did was, is just, you know, staggering. Uh, and I think you could say the same thing about, you know, other artists. I mean, you can get somebody as detailed as a, as a Michelangelo or a Leonardo da Vinci, uh, and then compare that with, um, you know, someone like, like Van Gogh and you come up with their completely different styles and, but they, they all bring about different emotions in different people and people see different things in them and show a different appreciation for them. I think that's, I think that's a good thing. I don't know if there's, there, I don't think there's one thing that we could say that's beautiful and that isn't beautiful. Um, it's, I think we have to be you know, careful about that. And I don't know if, if beauty is always in the aesthetic side of things. Something could be beautiful, but not necessarily look look beautiful or sound beautiful. Yeah, it, it's like uh, both things could be true, I guess. There there could be 
objective an objective standard of beauty but you personally might uh prefer something that doesn't fit that you know i think about the the rules of design and how god has created our eyes to like symmetry and these other other things that when we look at how things are designed we we naturally are drawn to it or not drawn to it based on these things um but obviously we can we can like things that don't don't fit those rules and um but i guess that doesn't negate the fact that there are those objective things um, that we have we've been made by god to see as beautiful yeah, I, I think so. But I think you know, on the other side, a lot of artists say, oh, this is art. You have to appreciate it because it's art. And I may have done this disgusting thing with it, but it's art. Uh, I, I think that is a cop out. I mean, there's some things there's obviously some moral aspects to some art that was, uh, you know, putting putting a crucifix in a jar of urine and calling it art, I think, is you know, goes beyond you know, what anybody would think is as is, 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 is being art. And I think maybe. Hunter Biden, who is now selling his art. Um, <laughs> I mean, there's there's some objectivity. There's got to be some objectivity to all this. Yeah, I, I think so. Um, I, I've been trying to formulate for myself in thinking of um, kind of some basics, basic rules that I would use to um, to judge a, a work, to judge a, a film. And the, the three main things that I was looking at was is it is it beautiful does it have the aesthetic aesthetic qualities and i would also throw into that category there's technical um proficiency you know good lighting good screenwriting good acting all those things fall into that that beauty category and then is it entertainment entertaining you know every everything that is well made uh has it fulfills its use and what is the use of of a movie is to be entertaining and different people can find different things entertaining, but does it entertain? I think that's an, an objective thing you can kind of decide about a film. And then the last one uh, would be truth. Does it, does it communicate truth? Um, And so you you could have different films that kind of fit one or two of those, but not all three. So something could be really well made, really beautiful, um, entertaining but not truthful it's it's a lie and that makes it not not good overall or it could be really truthful be about uh you know saying true things but it's not beautifully made and it's not entertaining and that's not going to be enough you need you need all three working what what do you what do you think about that yeah i I mean i think that i think that's a i think that's a good start uh I, i don't think it's enough um, if you're going to make a good movie, uh, of course, the inter- it's yeah, there's just a, there's a lot. There's a lot to it. Like I say, if you go back and watch a really well done movie with a really with really good actors, uh, I mean, that's a real gift uh, to be able to draw somebody in you know, to the story. It's not enough just to hey, I'm going to tell the truth here. It's going to er- entertain you know, some 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 people. Um, and I, but I think you have to do, okay, how are you going to do that? It's like, you know, I, we publish books. I could just throw that content together and say, hey, here's this book, you know, here I slapped, you know, I've typeset it with different fonts and I have a terrible cover on it. Uh, and we don't do that. We, we find the best typesetter. We, we, we look at the aesthetics, the, 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 the line, the line spacing, the font, the cover, all of that has to go into that book. You've got to find the appreciation of, of things, and you hand you know, when you produce something that uh, has to have all those those qualities to it. But yeah, a lot of a lot of films out there that you know were done on a really you know small small budget, to, you know, turned into real blockbusters. It's it's interesting to watch a a series uh, called uh, the, I think it's called the movies that made us, and I think there are four four episodes and they're coming out with, with some other episodes. And it is amazing to watch some of those. I think one of them was Home Alone, Die Hard, uh, and I think Ghostbusters. Uh, I have never, I've never seen Dirty Dancing. But when you sit and when you watch, if you, if you sit and watch these, like one guy said, I love Christmas. 
And I, so here is this Christmas movie that was done. And you're kind of surprised at this because what it looks like is a slapstick film, you know, throughout. And it's funny and the stunts are real. It's amazing. All those stunts that they did, they're real. But then you get down to the heart of the, of the film uh, where, where this neighbor who's thought to be an ogre and frightening and his relationship with his son and his granddaughter. I mean, all those types of things, you know, brought, you know, brought into this. Uh, was the producer, the director, the writer, were they Christians? I don't see any indication of that. But like I've said, you can't escape it. And it's great story. It's great storytelling. Great storytelling. We can learn lessons for how a movie like that is done. But you'll never be able to replicate that particular film. I, I'm always distressed when I see movies that are you know, remakes of movies. Uh, and they, they just keep trying to remake, uh, um, uh, you know, like Cheaper by the Dozen. And they remake, remake Cheaper by the Dozen, I think, with Steve Martin, and I forget who the, who, the, who the wife was. But you go back and watch the original Cheaper by the Dozen, uh, and it's, there's no comparison between the two. One of, the, one of them is all slapstick and uh, foibles by everyone, and the other one is a real real story with real people and, and issues related to life and death. In fact, there's even a, uh, a scene where Planned Parenthood knocks on the door uh, in, in, in Cheaper by the Dozen. Uh, so it, when, when I think about films, I think about all of the different films I've watched over the years and to, I could go through them and pull out what I liked about these particular films over against other, other films. But my guess is other people could do the same thing with, you know, something like uh, Nacho Libre or Napoleon Dynamite and so forth, which are Dumb and Dumber, which aren't films that I, yeah, I really care that much about. Some of them are, some of the things are, you know, fairly funny, but that's not my taste. It's not my style. Yeah. Well, Gary, thank you so much for talking movies with me for a little bit. I really appreciate it. Um, now I want to shift. I have some, uh, theological eschatology questions for you uh if you don't mind me asking a few more here okay so first one i understand that there are many verses that speak of jesus coming in judgment in AD 70 and we wrongfully assume that they're talking about the second coming of christ at the end of history so what are the passages that do speak of the second coming of christ at the end of history what's what's the biblical case for the idea of, of the second coming as we typically uh, talk about it. And how do you determine which verses are to be read as pertaining to that coming or not? Well, I always begin with the time indicators. If there are specific time indicators in Scripture, you have to apply it to whatever that time is. You can't extend time words like near and quickly and shortly, about to, uh, Two, you know, 2,000 years. You can't use Second Peter chapter 3, verse 8. You know, one day with the Lord is, is as a thousand years, and as one day, a thousand years is, is a day. And say, oh, oh every time you read a, a uh, eschatological time word, that somehow near can mean far, and far can mean near, and shortly can mean long period of time. You just can't do that. Um, you can't use, you know, this, the, I've always, I call it the, the miracle Bible verse that transforms all these other time passages. So I think you have to begin there. You have to begin with audience relevance, who, to whom is the writer addressing, and it's obvious in Matthew chapter 24, Jesus is addressing that particular audience. He uses the second person plural throughout. In fact, if you start with chapter 21 and, run, and just read it all the way through, you see that the second person plural is used throughout. Um, and in fact, at one at one point, um, when the the the, the, um, the religious leader says, "Oh, the, the Jesus, he's talking about us." Well, of course, he is. And I don't think that's any different in in uh, Matthew chapter 24, the end of chapter 23, 24. This is what this generation means. So Matthew 24, the Olivet discourse, obviously refers to that particular generation. It's not it's not a speaking about what we would call the second coming of Christ. Uh, and there are actually two coming passages there. One, um, uh, you, there's a kind of a, a judgment uh, passage there where, where he comes in judgment like lightning. 
And then there's the, where the, the other one is when he comes on the clouds of heaven. The coming in judgment passage refers to the destruction of Jerusalem in A.D. 70. The Matthew 24, 30, where he comes on the clouds of heaven, is a, is a reference to his exaltation. And we, we know all this had to have taken place before the destruction of Jerusalem in A.D. 70, because Jesus says in Matthew 24, verse 34, this generation will not pass away until all these things take place. So you're stuck with that. And you, you, you can't try to manipulate the text in order to make it mean something else. Now, if there are passages out there uh, that don't have a real time element to them or an audience element to them, uh, and then you have to evaluate those in terms of the general, the general context and the broader context to determine, you know, which of these, do these refer to uh, the destruction of Jerusalem in AD 70 to lead up to it, or is it referred to some distant future coming, consummating coming of Christ? And you just have to do the exegetical uh, work on it. I, I still, you know, I, there are a lot of passages I just haven't been able to figure out and come dogmatically on. Uh, and it's, it's a process. And it's unfortunate that the church hasn't worked this out. I mean, if you look at the creeds and the confessions, uh, this, this, this particular doctrine, this, the, the preterism, and, 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 and look, look, let's be, let's be honest here. If, uh, the, Passages that refer to the destruction of, of Jerusalem and the judgment and the lead up to that far, far, far outweigh the number of passages that would refer to the consummating coming of Christ. And yet, the, like the Westminster Confession of Faith, doesn't mention anything about it. Nothing. It spends its time on... So, so what are you know, those the, passages, though, that talk about the consummation? Well... You know, I'll give you the ones that people refer to, which would be Acts chapter one. Uh, he will come again in the same way you saw him, you know, go up into heaven. You first Corinthians, first Thessalonians chapter four, uh, verses thirteen through eighteen, uh, and first Corinthians, you know, fifteen. So, so those verses are the reason why you wouldn't be able to put yourself in the same camp as David Chilton in being a, a full preterist right and and denying that there is a consummating coming of christ yeah he did i never had the chance to talk to david about about that uh and he definitely did make make that uh, uh, assessment that but i don't know i don't know the arguments that he used in order to make make that assessment but those are the passages that are generally used and it's what's again What's interesting about those are there are very few of them that deal with that. Most of them deal with the with events surrounding the destruction of Jerusalem in AD 70. Now I know a lot of like Second Second Thessalonians 2, the man of lawlessness. Oh no, no, that you know the the the, um, the, the reformers and those who put together the Westminster Confession of Faith saw that as the the, the, the papal the, the papacy. And then they took the Antichrist passages, which has nothing to do with politically or nothing to do with what takes place in the distant future. They take those Antichrist passages, which are only found in two epistles, never mentioned in the book of Revelation, and apply that to some end-time political uh, religious figure. And yet when you pay close attention to what John writes in First, First John chapter 2, verse 18, he's saying, you know, this is about this is about to take place. The time is near. Uh, where this is the last hour. Uh, he identifies and defines the Antichrist in a very very specific way. All I'm saying is there's a lot more work that has to be done on this, uh, and a lot of the dogmatism that comes out here, I think, is coming more from the creedal side of things rather than sound ex exegesis. And I'm all about sound, sound exegesis, and whatever exege wherever the exegesis takes me, that's where I'm going to go. Uh, so it, those passages, I I continue to reassess. Uh, it's 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 more likely that I'm going to die uh, than that Jesus is going to come again. And I I always tell people that I said if the odds are you are going to die. Uh, and, and in fact, the Bible says this is appointed for man to die once, and after that comes the judgment. Uh, we are appointed to die. That is our nature. That's what what we're we were made we were made that way. 
And I can assure you, there is no such thing as a rapture. There's, there's no verse in the Bible that says the church is going to be taken off the earth before, during, or after a seven-year period. Um, that needs to completely go, you know, go away. There's not a single verse in the New Testament that says anything about that. And the, the, that's the first thing that's got, you've got to get off the table. And the second thing you have to do is deal with those passages which are very specific to the events of, of, the, of the first century, where the majority of uh, scriptural texts refer to. I mean, you got Matthew, you got, you got uh, Luke 17, you got Luke 21, Matthew 23, 24, 25, Mark 13. There are other places in uh, uh, Matthew's Gospel, Matthew 10, Matthew 16. Uh, the book of Revelation, chapter 1, verses 1, 1 and 3, uh, uh, Revelation chapter 3, verse 10, Re Revelation 2. You've got all these passages that obviously refer to the events leading up to the destruction of Jerusalem in a A.D. 70. Uh, and if, 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 if people can't get that straight, there's so much else they're not going to be able to get, a, get straight as well. Have any post-millennialists, uh, written anything that specifically focuses on those passages? Yeah, uh, Ken Gentry. I mean, he he's he's the one that has done the major amount of work on, on those passages. Now, he and I disagree on on some of those uh, passages, uh, but he's done the majority of work uh, on this because he's a he's a partial preterist and. Uh, he takes very specific passages and says they refer to what we call the second coming of Christ. I call it the consummating coming of Christ. So if you want a discussion of, of, of that, um, you could get his book, uh, uh, He Shall Have Dominion, where he deals with all those. Okay. So in uh, I was reading Matthew 5.18, and I remembered you talking about the phrase heaven and earth in second Peter three seventeen, referring to Israel and not to the universe. Um, and when it talks about heaven and earth passing away, it is talking about the old covenant passing away. Right. So when Jesus says in Matthew five, that the law will remain until heaven and earth pass away. Are we to take that to mean the law does not remain valid after the end of the old covenant? And if so, wouldn't that present a problem for theonomy and the enduring validity of God's law? Yeah, but see, if you read the past, this is, I've always had trouble. I, I remember talking to Jerry Boyer, who's a, been a friend for quite some time, and I remember him making the, the statement that, that theonomy dies a death of a thousand qualifications if you base it on Matthew chapter 5, 17 through 20. Because it says not a jot or tittle will pass away. Right. So it's not just doesn't say that the old you know the old covenant will pass away. It says a, a, the a, not a jot or tittle will pass away. Um, and if you look at Hebrews chapter I think it's Hebrews chapter eight verse thirteen. Uh, I'll read this if I can find it real quick. It says, uh, when he said a new covenant, he has made the first obsolete, but whatever is becoming obsolete and growing old is ready to disappear or near to disappear. And, and David Chilton commented on that, on that verse in a, in a couple of lectures. Um, it was in the process of disappearing. And I think that's what Jesus is saying in Matthew chapter 5. Um, dealing with the law, with the jots and the tittles of the law, because the jots and the tittles of the law were, in fact, be pass, being passed away. Uh, in, the, in the final aspect of the Old Covenant, of course, was, was the destruction of Jerusalem in AD 70, because you, you, could, you couldn't apply all of those jots and tittles if you know, the, temp, the temple is destroyed. I believe theonomy is better assessed uh, by looking at a passage like, uh, you know, first you know, First Timothy chapter one, which I think is a much, much more clear statement uh, than you find, uh, you know, uh, elsewhere. It's 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 very very specific. I mean, if you, let me read this. Um, verse eight, uh, first uh, First Timothy chapter one, verse eight. But we know that the law is good if one uses it lawfully. So you actually have to use the law 
in order to apply the law, realizing the fact that law is not made for a righteous man, but for those who are lawless and rebellious, for the ungodly and sinners, for the unholy and profane, for those who kill their fathers or mothers, for murderers and immoral men and homosexuals and kidnappers and liars and perjurers and whatever else is contrary to sound teaching. So to me, that and, all, and everything he mentions there, of course, taken from the Old Testament, then you have examples with how you can apply the, the, the law. You don't muzzle an ox while he's trading out the corn. And he's applying that to human beings. Uh, you know, 1 Corinthians chapter 5, I mean, you got a number of passages in the Old Testament that's obvious that the, this, this, the moral sense of the law is still applicable, applicable within the context of the New Testament. But what was passing away is what the book of Hebrews describes over and over and over again, and yet you don't find anything in the book of Hebrews saying that the moral aspect of, of, of the law passed away. What was passing away was the, you know, the blood of bulls and goats because Jesus has come and he has become the, the high priest, so the priesthood passes away. Uh, we, we know that Jesus said that every aspect of the temple would pass away, and he said, look, destroy this temple, and in three days I'll raise it back up again. He's talking about the temple of his body. I, I just think that's a better way to argue theonomy than, than uh, Matthew chapter 5. Would you say that whenever we see that phrase, heaven and earth, we should think of the Old Covenant? Or is it ever to be interpreted as heaven and earth, the cosmos, when it, when it uses that phrase? No, I think it's, it, I think it's both. But that, again, that's, that's typical. Uh, here you, you find you know, John the Baptist, and he talks about every hill will be brought low and every valley will be lifted up. Well, it's obvious he's not talking about literal hills and valleys because that never happened and no one would have taken it that way. Uh, so sometimes mountains and hills and valleys mean mountains and hills and valleys and sometimes it means it's a, it's, it's, it's a metaphor uh, for you know, the, the straightening of things and, and, and bringing things into, into, into normalcy in terms of the, 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 the Messiah. The same thing with trees. Um, you know, tree is known by its by its fruit. You know, you, you know your fruit is rotten. Uh, so I, I don't think that's unusual at all. And there are numerous cases. If, if you look at Isaiah chapter 65 and 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 uh, 66, uh, let me just turn this off here. Um, if you if you look at Isaiah chapter 65 and 66, it's obvious. That, the, that Isaiah is talking about the new heavens and the new earth, and people are still dying in this new heavens and new earth, which in, 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 in some fashion is supposed to be uh, uh, the, the renovated new heavens and new earth where death has been done away with, physical death is done away with. Um, and, and you find a lot, of, a lot of guys who took that position. John Owen you know, took, took the position that heaven and earth in, in the various contexts referred to the uh, the passing away of the old covenant. John Brown and his discourses and sayings. Um, John Lightfoot, uh, Charles Spurgeon, uh, and so I, it's 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 nothing unusual. You just, if you let Scripture interpret Scripture, I think you come to the conclusion that in many cases, I think it's the same thing that's taking place in Second Peter chapter three, uh, uh, because the elements there. That are that pass away aren't atomic elements. The elements that, uh, there are are the 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 elements of the old covenant that were passing away. You can see that in Hebrews chapter five and other places. Uh, it, it's not talking about the physical universe. It's talking about the elements of the of the of, of the law, the old the old covenant principles that are passing away. So you would say uh, Bonson shouldn't have put emphasis on Matthew five to to make his <laughs> argument. Uh, you're not going to put me in that. I mean, there's, I mean, Greg, if, if you know, Greg uh, uh, was, was absolutely brilliant. Would he have, cha would he have changed his mind? Uh, I, I, I don't know uh, if, 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 if he would have. But all I can tell you this: he didn't always argue for the continuing validity of God's law only on the basis of Matthew chapter five. So that's that that's clear. Even if you got rid of even if you got rid of that as a as a supporting verse, um, I mean his arguments and all of his all of his works and any debates he's had is it's it, you know he, 
he was basing on other things as well. Yeah, definitely. But I, I but I don't I don't use that I don't use that passage to defend theonomy. I go elsewhere. Okay, last question for you. Um, I was thinking about how a lot of your argumentation in eschatology is mainly directed at the dispensational view, and I don't I don't see a lot of uh, debate between specifically post mill and ah mill guys. Um, so I, I was I was wondering if why why the focus is on that, and if you've ever uh, directed arguments specifically at the Amil position? Uh, I've written a little bit on it. Uh, uh, I've responded to a fellow named David Engelsma uh, on it. Um, a lot of the arguments that amillennialists use are very similar to what dispensationalists use. They won't want to admit that, but David Engelsma, if you read his stuff, he sounds like a dispensationalist. And the reason I spend more time on the, the, the dispensational side of things is because that's where the big, big, big debate is. Uh, amillennialism uh, probably is more popular than postmillennialism, uh, but dispensational premillennialism is way, way, way more popular than either amillennialism or, 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 uh, or even historic, historic premillennialism or postmillennialism. So that's where I put my efforts. Um, I'm writing more on the post-millennial side of things, um, but uh, you know Ken Gentry has done a good a good job on that. I, I I try to try to stick where I think I'm best at, uh, and I'll probably do more on the post-millennial side of things because I've. But every day some new thing comes up regarding how we're living in the last days. Uh, I just saw something today on Facebook about how Revelation chapter three, you know, verse 10 is obviously talking about escaping the great tribulation. And I don't know how you say that because it was written to the church at Philadelphia. Um, have you, and, have you uh, ever done any, uh, debates that were just post mill versus odd mill or seen any? I don't think, no, I haven't. No. The only thing I did was a, a critique of David Engelsma. I invited David. Uh, I, I had David Engelsma invite me up to where he teaches, and I'd be more than happy to come up and you know to debate him on his uh, perspective on, on on eschatology, which is much like dispensation. He wanted me to bring him down here, and I so I wouldn't have an audience for it because you know people I know aren't all millennial, um, and um, it. it I try to put my time in things where I'm getting a big, you know, the biggest bang for my buck, and all millennialism for me just isn't, you know, where it's, you know, where it's happening. And Ken has done a great job in that area, um, and others have done this, have done the same thing. All millennialists have to deal with the time indicators. Uh, they have to deal with all the arguments that preterists raise uh, before they can critique postmillennialism because. A lot of their critique of postmillennialism is dependent upon passages that preterists use to show that they refer not to the some future eschatological event, but refer to events leading up to and, and, and including the destruction of Jerusalem in AD 70. I mean, John Murray, who was, I've, I've understood, was a postmillennialist, um, and I uh, forget who was the, one of the fellows. I, I, I did debate a, a, a fellow, uh, a Baptist on uh, he was participating with uh, James Hamilton, Sam and me. Sam Waldron. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I wrote a critique of his his uh, uh, exegesis of Matthew twenty four, and he was following John Murray. And John Murray was kind of mixed mixed future with with you know the events surrounding AD seventy and and so forth, um, and which to me is terribly confusing and. You really have to manipulate the text in order to, you know, to get that. So until all millennialists deal with that, I think Sam Storms is very close as an all millennialist uh, to more of a preterist perspective than a lot of other uh, uh, all millennialists are. But I, look, I, I think a lot of all millennialists are afraid. Are afraid. Uh, it's it's comfortable being an all millennialist if you're a pastor in a in a, in a conservative church. You're not a premillennialist 
you're not a you're not a, a dispensationalist and you're not a postmillennialist, and so you can breathe a sigh of relief as an amillennialist. Trying to get a job at a seminary as a postmillennialist, preterist postmillennialist, it's just it's not going to happen. Um, it wasn't an issue at Reformed Theological Seminary where where Greg Bonson came, um, and and he was he believed in the, the early dating of the Book of Revelation, um, but see back then this was in the 70s that just that wasn't that, that wasn't so much the questions to ask the questions they were to ask were the creedal the creedal questions uh, and the confessional questions and the Westminster Confession of Faith doesn't deal with preterism um, and it, it deals simply with doesn't even deal with the millennial issue in fact it doesn't even deal with hell which is kind of interesting as well so that those things weren't on the table now today because of a lot of the work that's been done in the, by, by preterist writers, it's now on the table. And it's going to be, because the questions that you ask, this is the question that always comes up. Oh, what are the passages that refer to you know, the, 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 the second coming or the consummating coming of Christ? Because that becomes a creedal and confessional statement. Uh, and so that's where the emphasis is.